Heavenly Father, we were inundated with sound bites and news stories and messaging and advice and information. All through this last week, it's, it's hard to even quantify how much, how many words hit our ears or our eyes. Some of them were good. Some of them were helpful. Some of them were silly. Some of them were entertaining. Some of them were confusing. Some of them were offensive. Some of them are derailing. Some of them are masquerading as light, but they're truly darkness. So God, as we come to your word, I ask that you would do something for us, that you would help to single it out. It would rise above all the other, rise above all the other noise in, in clarity, in authority, in impact. You who said, let light shine out of darkness, you who created this entire world through the power of your word can do things in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships, in our cities, in our world through your word being heard, through your word being received, through your word being applied. So God, might you grant us a hunger as we come to it, just tune our our minds, our hearts, even our bodies to come and worship you through through a desire to hear your word. Grant us a humility that we would bow our knees beneath it where it affirms us. We still need the humility to receive it where it offends us. We need the humility to be challenged by it. God, above all things, what we ask for, what we need most, uh, this is true for everyone in this room without even knowing all of their stories, whether they've been Christians forever or whether they yet are yet to know you, don't even know how they ended up here, whether they came through a friend or they just showed up. What every single person needs most is to leave this time more impressed, more sure, more confident, more dependent, upon Jesus, what he's done, all that he is, and all that he promises to do. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and lift him high, that our hearts might go after him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Luke chapter 10, verse 21 and following, this is God's holy and flawless, wonderful, challenging word for us. In that same hour, he, speaking of Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down for Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robber? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Feel free to grab a seat. So let's start with the lawyer's last question. He says this, he says, who is my neighbor? Um, He's trying to do is define the scope of neighbor so he can justify himself. So he can say, I'm keeping it. I'm doing it. And he's trying to f- rein in what we mean by neighbor. There's a few things that we know about this neighbor just from this text. One of these uh, it likely was not a sincere exchange. He stood up. It's a power play in this context and culture. He stands up. And then the phrase, he put him to a test, is almost never used positively. It always has this kind of negative connotation, like I'm trying to catch Jesus in something. He doesn't accept Jesus' answer, but looks for a loophole. There's a large consensus amongst, if you go read commentaries and, and different scholars on this, there's large consensus that the lawyer in asking, who is my neighbor, was really asking this. Who is worthy of me loving? Who do I have to love? Where does someone cease to be my neighbor so I can disregard them, their plight, or their situation? Now, we could go down this path and it would be a fruitful study, but here's here's the real issue. He asked the wrong question. The lawyer in asking who is my neighbor actually asked the wrong question. Jesus never even directly answers it. When he asks, you know, who qualifies as my neighbor, what he should have been asking is this, what type of neighbor am I? We see it in the text, that's the force of Jesus' question that he ends this parable with. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Who is actually neighborly? Not who is my neighbor, but are you the type of person that will love those in need? Vince Miller, in a blog post, Mercy Would Make America Great Again, says this, a narrow focus on the term neighbor concentrates on a select few. The religious lawyer likely thought it meant those geographically, religiously, and even politically similar, the people with whom he naturally shared life. But to act neighborly shifts the focus onto loving rightly all people. All people is a resounding answer to the question, who is my neighbor? The core issue then, and this is a wonderful insight, the core issue then becomes not so much about other people and their beliefs, but rather who we are, the condition of our hearts, and how we speak and act towards 
others. Let me restate that. The core issue then becomes not so much about other people and their beliefs, but rather who we are, the condition of our hearts, and how we speak and act towards others. We're going to lean into that flip, that it's not about who's my neighbor, let me define the scope, and then I'll go love those people. We're going to focus on who am I, am I neighborly towards anyone, but I want to just do a quick excursus. The reason there are no non-neighbors is there are no non-persons. There aren't even any ordinary persons. C.S. Lewis, in a remarkable essay called The Weight of Glory, says this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal, and their life to ours is as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, speaking of communion, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. I don't know if Lewis is right, like second holiest object, but, but, it, but his point is this, every single person that you encounter has an inestimable value because they are the only thing you will ever encounter in this entire world that is made in the image of God. One of the great tragedies of this parable and the question that this lawyer asks in trying to narrow the scope of who qualifies for me to love and to care about is that it steps over, or in this parable, it steps across the street away from image bearers made in the image of God. The question is really, who am I? Which of these three proved to be a neighbor? Jesus upends the lawyer's question with his own ineffective. They stop worrying about who your neighbor is. Start worrying about what type of neighbor you are. I love this insight from John Piper. He says like this, he says, Jesus changes the question. I know I've already made this point. I want to drive it in because this is what's, if you don't get this, the parable won't apply the way it's supposed to. Jesus changes the question from what kind of person is my neighbor to what kind of person am I? He changes the question from what status of people are worthy to love to how can I become the kind of person whose compassion disregards status? The parable is an invitation to the lawyer. The context here is Jesus was giving it to this lawyer who's trying to narrow the scope of who my neighbor is and then indirectly uh, invitation to us To say, where am I in this story? Where would I find myself if I was in this spot? Would I be the person that that, that sees the need, sees the person, walks to the other side of the street? Would I be the person that stops and helps? Am I the person that's half dead? It's an invitation to find yourself in the text. A few years ago, I was driving down I-90. I was going East. I was with my brother and my dad. Probably ten plus years ago, we were on a, on a little guys trip, and as we were driving, we got outside Issaquah, and we passed Preston. We're kind of going through the, the the curves towards North Bend, and in in the the highway goes east, and it's going west, and in between are a bunch of trees, and kind of like this ravine or this this hillside that goes down. And there's a guardrail, and we came around one bend, and there's a number of cars that were parked on the shoulder, and there was smoke that was going up from in between the highway where all these trees are on this hill. Side and I, I pulled the car over. I didn't know what I'd do, but I wanted to make sure if there was something we could do to help, we, we would help. And so I pull over, I get out of the car, and I jump over the guardrail. Um, this is where my knees work, so I jumped over the guardrail. Now I would 
Probably need a step stool. But, but, but I went over the guardrail and there's this hillside and I looked down and about 50 feet, 75 feet, something like that, there's a car that's upside down and the, part of the, the wheels are still spinning a little bit and there's smoke coming up from it and there's stuff from the car that's kind of all over the street and on, on the trees. And here was the thing that got me. There was people all around that had their phones out and they're just videotaping. I remember kind of scurrying down the hillside and there's a couple other people that were then by the driver's side and the driver was in there. She was still belted in. She was bleeding and she was scared. And I remember this, this, this feeling of like, why are you standing videotaping? This woman, this, this woman had ceased to become a neighbor, had ceased to become a person, had become entertainment. In this parable, this half-dead man ceased to become a neighbor. He became an inconvenience. Whatever that inconvenience was. And so Jesus tells us, probably, says there's a priest who's going down. The language here really is probably going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jericho is about 17, 18 miles away. It was a couple thousand feet beneath Jerusalem. Up at Jerusalem is where the, main, the temple was. This is where the priests would go up and they would serve for a week. And after they served for a week, they would make this trek back down to Jericho. And they went down to Jericho. Jericho was a very popular place for the priests to live because it was far enough away. You kind of got away from your work, but it was also close enough you could commute there on feet. And so they would go down to Jericho. And this scene is this priest is going down after every day, every morning saying, I'm going to love the Lord my God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every night doing that, doing all of the temple service, you know, praying, uh, offering up the sacrifices, ministering to the people. Think of like a pastor. And as he goes down, he sees a man that's half dead. And he sees him and he steps to the other side and he walks on. Now, people are divided on why didn't he help? Why didn't he help? You know, it could be, well, this is going to make him ceremonially unclean. He can't touch a dead body. He can't touch, you know, blood. He can't, he can't do that. It could be, maybe he's distracted. Maybe his kid's got a birthday party. He needs to get there. Maybe he's got no money. To say. He doesn't think he can help. Maybe he's afraid there's other robbers around that are going to come get him. And this guy's basically bait. We don't know in the text. And I actually think it's better that we don't know because what Jesus is saying doesn't matter. He missed the opportunity to help. The Levite, same thing, goes down. They were uh, assistants to the priests. Same road, same man, same response. The priest didn't get it. The Levite didn't get it. We can assume, based on the question of the lawyer, that he did not get it. And one of the things they didn't get, is, which is actually a scathing rebuke of those that should have gotten it, is when you go up to verse 21. That's why I read it. In that same hour, Jesus, he rejoiced. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The parable is an example of how the wise and understanding, those that, that preach, don't practice. Those that know what they're supposed to do, don't do. The, the, the lawyer here is not just any type of lawyer. He was a biblical law expert, and he didn't get it. The priest, his pastor, didn't get it. The Levite was like a deacon. The super servants of the church didn't get it. The one person that got it, a Samaritan, who was looked at by the Jews. This is widely believed at this time. The, the, the history seems to support this. Um, as someone ethnically and religiously inferior. But he got it. I'm going to do two books to kind of apply this parable. Um, I've read neither of these books. But the titles got me. 
Bob Goff, um, I've heard it's, these are good books. I can't verify or not. Um, but Bob Goff has two books that I think apply. If you're going to do a little summary punchline on how might we apply this parable, here's the two titles. Love does, everybody always. Love does, there's action. There's some way it works out in the life of real people for everybody, always, as you go about living. The thrust of this parable is to get his followers, that's you and me if you're a Christ follower, and if you're not, I hope you become one so that then you can do this too, to live out imperfectly for sure, but to live out the command written in the law. Verse 27, let me, let me read it to you again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This parable is, a, is an illustration. Jesus is using it as a way of saying, this is what it looks to live out that command, to love God with everything in you and to love those around you with, as if they were you. Love does. You go. Jesus ends it with this very clear instruction. You go and do likewise. Go be like that neighbor. You go love your neighbor as yourself. This is the call to action. It sounds um, simple. And in some ways, it okay, just love people. But if we're honest, it can feel overwhelming. Okay, if everybody could be my neighbor and some of the needs can get very big and very complex and, you know, how, how, do, I, how do I do this? If there are no non-neighbors and there's no limits on who we are to love, how do, we, how do we live that out? Because we do have limits. We're finite. God designed you to be finite. You don't have all the resources required to meet all of the needs that you will confront in your life. So what do we do about it? I think remember this. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is it not about defining who is my neighbor and what am I to do, but really just asking, starting in this place, what type of person am I? What's going on in my heart towards the people around me and the needs that I hear about? Client Snodgrass in his um, book, Stories with Intent, says it like this. He says, knowing how to implement this parable is, much, is a much harder task than we realize. Neither it nor any other section of the NT, New Testament, last part of the Bible, give any indication of how to love neighbor as self or what the limits are. The New Testament is more of an identity book than a guidebook. It tells what Christian character is, not what actions must be done in each case. Disciples of Jesus are those who refuse boundaries for the identification of neighbor and instead love even their enemies. With that identity in place, each person must determine what path of wisdom best expresses that identity. I don't know if I agree with everything Snodgrass said. I think the Bible does give some tangible, practical, this is how you love your neighbor. But, it's, but I think his principle is really good. He says, it's trying to form an identity. Christ is trying to form a certain type of person that in this situation with wisdom can discern, what am I supposed to do here? How am I supposed to engage here? I'll try to give you two handles to try to help with that. Um, one handle is this need and nearness, and the other is this action and ability. As you think about need and nearness, you, know, you can imagine like one street, it's called need, the other street is called nearness, and as they cross each other at that intersection, at that place of need and nearness, when needs become real to you, when you come upon them, that's where you enter in and you act. I want to try to clarify something, though. Nearness isn't exclusively about physical proximity, although it often includes that. It's really about drawing close enough 
to see the need and to see the person in need, that it stirs compassion in you to the place that mercy spills out. It's to enter into the lived reality of somebody else until you understand what their lived reality actually feels like. It's to walk in their shoes. Put yourself in their situation long enough. I mean, that's, we see that in the text. The, the, the priest came and he looked, but he didn't look close enough. The, the, the note on the Levite is actually he drew near and he looked. He got closer. But it wasn't enough to, to, to say, if I was there, what would I want someone to do? So we draw near to things. And this happens a lot of ways. Um, there's an area for me that, that has become um, a bigger burden um, over the last number of years. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit a number of different examples. So I'll tell you this on the front. I'm going to offend probably every single person in this room to some extent. And if you feel offended, you can send an email to dane at redeemer <laughs> and w.org to remind you my name's Rob. But send it to dane at um, undocumented neighbors. This first started for me when I started thinking about students. I started thinking about like, what, what would it be like if you're a 15-year-old? And, 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 and you want to go to college. And you want to study, you want to be a mechanical engineer. And because you're undocumented, you don't qualify. You cannot access things like federal funds for loans. You're also really worried about things like who finds out what happens to my family, what happens to me, what happens to those around me. Who can I trust to bring this up to? And then you could play that out. As I began to think about this, I, I started thinking about like, what's it like, look like if you're, you're undocumented and you're working? How vulnerable you are. How, what, what, what protections do you have? What, what rights do you even know about? What things can you avail yourself of to try to deal with whatever situation you're in or withheld pay or working conditions that are harsh, whatever it is. Now, here's, not, here's what I'm not saying. I don't know the solution. I'm not making a, a, a plea for open borders or closed borders or what. I, I don't know. That is, that is beyond what I, but here's, here's what I'm talking. I just care about the 15-year-old that's down the street and I don't know what to do with that. Dane at RedeemerNW.org. <laughs> Need and nearness. You get near something, it just goes like, man, your heart starts to go, ah, what do I do? What do I do? Two more words, action and ability. Um, this is where need and nearness converge, and we take action according to what we're able to do. Not according to what we can't do. But what can we do? The, the, the Samaritan who came down, he had the resources to be able to provide um, at least two weeks worth of lodging and food. Two denarii would have been the equivalent of two weeks of, of, of care. You know, kind of like, it's like an all-inclusive for two weeks for this guy to, to try to get mended and, and helped. He had the equivalent of a first century uh, first aid kit. He had oil and wine. The, the wine would have functioned like a disinfectant. The oil would have soothed the wounds to try to bring some, some pain relief. He had an animal on which to, to put this person who it seems like couldn't walk or would really struggle to walk to be able to take him to a place. He gave up a day. He stayed with him until the next day. And then he talks to the innkeeper and he says, I'm going to come back and whatever else it is, you can charge that against me. 
he was able to do it. It wasn't easy. It wasn't convenient. I'm sure it took him away from other things that he wanted to do or, or, or put him at risk in things that he didn't want to do. It was costly. It was messy. But it was doable. And I want to affirm, oh, goodness, we cannot do everything. But we can do something. And what that does for us when we embrace that is that it holds us accountable to what we can do. It frees us from what we can't do. And maybe more than anything else, it'll guard us against the cynicism that seems to steep into some of our hearts that look at all of the needs and the problems around this world and around our cities and in our schools and in our workplaces and say, why do, there's just so much. Where do you even start? I remember when my wife and I, when we were adopting, two of our kids are adopted, which has been one of the greatest joys we've ever been given. Um, when people found out, there was one person in particular, when he found out, um, he, he just said to me, he goes, I don't understand why you would adopt. You're not going to change anything. I thought a number of things in that moment that I wanted to say back <laughs> to that person. I said, oh, I know I won't change the world, but I'll change their world. You can do something. You can. you can. There is an area, there is a place that we can and do. And I want to affirm that do. In this room, there's a lot of going and doing. Likewise, you can do something. And think about this. What if, what if the church mobilized itself in the words of Christ from a parable like this and said, I'm going to do the thing I can do? What if we put that collectively together? You know what? Mercy might just change the world. Love does. It does something everybody always. There's no direct answer to who is a neighbor? Because the answer is ultimately anyone. Love puts no limits on who qualifies as a neighbor. If you go back to this lawyer's question, the parable is showing what it looks like to obey the command to love your neighbor as yourself. If said it, I want to clarify it. That is not primarily a command to love yourself, although you should. You are custom made by God. It's not a command to practice good self-care, although that's a good idea. It's not a command to treat yourself, although feel free. When Jesus says this, when the Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself, what it means is as love your neighbor as if you were your neighbor, as if you were in their spot, as if you were that person in need. And the idea is need and nearness intersect. You extend mercy as you are able to anyone. I'm going to pick up that anyone, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through a number of different neighbor groups. I'm going to do this for three reasons at least. The first one is this, um, and I'll put this together, inspiration and affirmation. I want to draw out the things that I see happen from the people in this church, the many places that you go, serve, care, love, minister, work. I want to try to shrink the distance between your jobs and the loving of your neighbor. I want to try to shrink the distance between your volunteer time and the loving of your neighbor. I want to try to celebrate the many ways that God has already mobilized you towards that and and, and, and really to inspire you to keep doing it. I want to invite you to consider, for some of us, God might use this to invite us into new areas to serve, new places where need and nearness meet. As you get exposed to and you say, I have the ability to engage there. And I want to challenge us. Um, I don't personally know anybody that would do what this text says, to step on the other side, see someone in need, and just keep walking in this way. 
But it doesn't mean there are no areas of resistance towards certain type of people in our society, in our communities, and in our spheres. There are always ways that we can tend towards unneighboring other people. All right, here we go. Person in prison neighbors. Person in prison neighbors, incarcerated neighbors. I, I searched, I was like, what's, what's the term? Like, what's the... What's the best way of saying this? And, and I, I'll say this on the front, because I'm going to do this a few times. I'm not the most politically correct person, particularly in my mind. The things I want to say, I try to filter quite a bit. But I was like, what's it look like to try to, to, to speak about people in a way that, redeem, that remembers their person? And one of the things I like, about it, it starts with person. This is someone made in the image of God. However, they ended up incarcerated. Someone made in the image of God. What's it like, look like to love that person? Well, it's things like this. Do we care about the conditions of a prison? Do we care about access to education? Do we care about the cost of a phone call? Do we care about how the arrest was made? Do we care about how the case was investigated? Do we care? And we can put the whole criminal justice system. Do we care about how people are handled and, and how they're spoken to? And how they're, do we care about the accused and the accuser? Do we care about the, 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 the defendant? Do we care about the, 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 the prosecutor? Do, do we care about the, the lawyers involved? Do we care about the judge? Do we, do we care about the, the, the jury and, and what they bring to the table? And every single person, this human being, part of this system, do we care? Do we, do, do we care about policies? I was talking to a friend who's a police officer this past week, and we were talking through some policies and, you know, there's things that get added, things that get removed, policies get tweaked, things get changed, things get, you know, there's all, this very fluid. And one of the things I was re reading about recently, there's something up and it's, it wants to change what it was put in as a restriction from what I understand towards uh, pursuit. Like, when can a police officer pursue? And I was talking to this police officer, and you don't have to agree with what he said. I'm not asking you to agree, but I want you to hear the love for neighbor that he's trying to express. He goes, oh, I don't think we should pursue people in places of stolen property. Like someone steals a car, I don't think I should flip the lights on and just start zooming down the road. And I was like, why? And he goes, because the damage that that could potentially create, the, the, the trauma towards life is more than the cost of the $5,000 car, $10,000. And there's other mechanisms we can use to try to get that car back. There's other things we can do to try to pursue justice in that. He goes, but in cases of violent crime where there's, there's threats that are issued, there's, there's weapons involved, he goes, oh yeah, we better pursue now, again, you don't have to agree with how he applied it. I don't know enough about it to say, yes, you're right, no, you're not. But I love that he was saying, I want to love my neighbor. The person who stole the car, the person on the sidewalk, the person down the street on the freeway. What's it look like to love our neighbor? How about this? Law enforcement neighbors. What's it look like when you drive around our community and you see the initials ACB? If you don't know what it means, you could ask somebody. But what happens? Do you go, that, that's, that's not an ordinary person. That's no mere moral. That, that person matters when they pull up to the corner of Blackdrop and have someone out on the sidewalk look at them and say, I hope you get shot today. Like, what's that look like for us as a society to throw the nonsense of our rhetoric away and see people as people? Oh, my goodness, it matters. All the policies, the practices, the training, the funding, it all matters. And I do not have the answer other than love your neighbor as yourself. Dane at RedeemerNW.org. Um, 
unborn neighbors. Unborn neighbors. That's why we prayed this morning. What's it look like for us to love our unborn neighbors? To speak for those that can't speak. When you volunteer, so it's how this works. I mean, we have people in our church that volunteer at the Whatcom County Pregnancy Clinic, that, they, that they're involved, that they're trying to provide care and life and options. People that volunteer and care for those that abortion has marked part of their story to, to show them the grace of God that can forgive and mend and bring redemption and write a new chapter. What it looks like to fund. I mean, these are all expressions of loving your neighbor. Those that are involved in foster care and adoption. Those that provide respite care. Those, those, those that just model like kids are a gift from the Lord. Compassion produces mercy and mercy can change the world. Persons experiencing homelessness neighbors. Got that phrase from uh, Seattle City's government. I guess that's the phrase they use. Again, there's lots of things I think when I think about all these areas. Um, but I like that persons is first. What's it look like to, to, to love our neighbor? Whatever reason, and that's the thing is in this text, we don't know why this guy's half dead. We don't know, was he part of the group that was ripping people off? We don't know if he was making unwise choices. We don't know. Like, we, we don't know why he's in the spot, but does it matter? It's an image bearer laying on the ground. Oh, goodness, the wisdom on how to fix it, what to do, you know, what helps, what hurts. I'm, I'm, I'm kerfuffled. I don't know. I think that's a word. Confounded. I don't, I don't know, but, but, but I know I can start with saying, I want to love this person. So like when you volunteer at the lighthouse, we, you know, we have people in our church that work there. We have people that serve on the board there. We have people that, that give financially there. We have people, you know, sometimes it's just when you walk, just a smile to recognize the humanity of someone else. You're loving your neighbor and, and, and compassion will produce mercy that will change the world. How about this? Politically different neighbors. Originally, I wrote, I said political nemesis neighbors, but I thought that was a little too, a little too harsh. I mean, come on, we're, you gotta be tired of the absolute nonsense of how we speak about people on the other side of an issue. I was at uh, Colshan, at a brewery in town, and where I was sitting, I, I could see like, it was kind of around the corner from where like the, the, server is and the iPad that takes the money and all this stuff. And there's a little sign that's written for just the servers to see. So it's just a little reminder to them. And here's what the little note, this little handwritten note said. It says, don't forget to love one another. That's in, sitting in a brewery. Man, our, our world is craving and longing for this parable to be lived out in our Offices and our classrooms and board meetings on airplanes and coffee shops and restaurants. Politically diverse neighbors. Do, do, we, do we love them? And let me give you a little tip why for me, this has been one of the most helpful things. Our world is a patchwork of righteousness and unrighteousness. And sometimes this side gets it right. And sometimes this side gets it right. And in all the other spots, they get it wrong, right? And so, but, 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 but the Bible conforms over here and over here and sometimes slightly here and slightly here and maybe a little bit here and a little bit here. 
So what's it look like for us to love those that are politically different than us? Even when they're wrong, even when you, you think the things they believe. And like I said, I, I'm not giving you like, here's my solution or here's what I believe or here's how I vote. I don't think this is meant to be used for that purpose. But, 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 I, but I will tell you, like there are things that make me angry that people push, policies that people push, and it's okay to be angry, but do you love the person that came up with it? And do the work you can to see what you think is right to go through. All right, ethnically diverse neighbors or ethnically different neighbors. Again, this was a time when uh, Jews and Samaritans were, were very divided. I don't think Jesus uses this as an example by chance. Sadly, there has been times where we have been so divided over the tone of someone's skin or their background Remember Amanda Watt, um, one of our missionaries uh, that's in the Middle East. She um, she was out at Fred Meyer for Bakerview, and she she was there. She was grocery shopping, and a woman came out wearing a hijab. and um, And I apologize if I mispronounced it, but what Amanda did, she went up to this woman and she gave her the traditional Middle Eastern welcome. And this woman, she began to cry, and then said to Amanda, "says I come down here." I live up in Canada. I come down because food is cheaper here. I don't know if that's true anymore. But when, when milk is cheaper here. Milk you got to mortgage your house for now. But, but at the time, could access, she just goes, and I come down, but people just glare at me. You're the first person that smiled. Compassion produces mercy, and mercy can change everything. How about this lonely neighbors? John Mulaney was hosting Saturday Night Live as a comedian, and he cracked this joke. He, he, he said, no one ever talks about Jesus' greatest miracle. You know what it was? Jesus had 12 really good friends in his 30s. <laughs> and they weren't his wife's husbands. Like, like, he goes, you know, your dad went out fishing like one time with his buddies. Jesus fished with his buddies every single day in his 30s. And I think why the joke was funny is it resonated with a lot of people. It's like, yeah, you know, we kind of are lonely. A lot of people are really lonely. I think about when I drive down Fairhaven Parkway and you see the, the different buildings and facilities that have image bearers inside that are lonely. Not all, but some of them are so lonely. How about combat veteran neighbors? Those that have gone to war, those that have fought, those that have seen things that... that are heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, hard, difficult, who have risked their lives. Come back, suffer to, like, how do I re-engage society? How do I deal with PTSD? How do I do this? I was reading a book recently called um, Running with Sherman. It's basically a story of ultra-running with a donkey. That's the story. True story. Actually, I'm, this actually happens. People do this. What's it look like to love your running with donkey neighbors? But, but they, like literally people take donkeys and they go do these races together. So the whole story is about that. But there's a whole chapter and a lot of it's tapping into like how animals are used to try to help people in, in different struggles and situations. And, and there's people that are looking at how do we take dogs and, 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 and partner them with, with people that are suffering PTSD from being at war and will it help? And as I was listening to it, I was thinking about this text. I go, you know what that person's doing? Trying to love their neighbor. They're saying, I don't know if it works. I think they're trying to figure it out. But they're saying, I want to try to love my neighbor who's sitting here struggling. What can I do? Sick neighbors. People battling diseases, cancer and Parkinson's and heart disease and so many other things. 
You know what loving your neighbor looks like? In, is, in our church, it looks like I, I thank God for medical professionals. Anyone else? Because it's a job that I praise God someone does because I would be nauseous the entire, like the, like, like the things that they touch and deal with, I mean, it's like image bearers for sure, but ooh, you know? And, and, but, but, but they feel called to carry on the healing ministry of Jesus. I praise God for that. I praise God for people that work for pharmaceutical companies in ethical ways. And what they do is try to spread life-saving vaccines and medicine and treatments I thank God for janitors and, and people that provide food resources and for COOs of hospitals that try to keep it running well and for ambulance drivers and for paramedics. And I mean, these are all ways that we're seeing this is loving our neighbors. I just do, I'll, boy, I want to keep going. I'll, I'll, let me do one more. How about persecuted Christian neighbors? You know, those that live in places where it's really difficult to follow Christ. Uh, Open Doors is an organization that published lists on this to, to kind of bring exposure to try to get you near to the need. And I was reading a recent post. It was, it was going through the top 10 countries right now that are most difficult to be a Christ follower because of the persecution, whether it's economic, um, physical, um, social, like a variety combination of them. And there's two things that happened. One was very convicting to me and exposes my immaturity, and then God flipped it. Um, the first thing that I'd read through the list is I actually wasn't that wrecked. It's kind of like the Levite or the priest. Saw the need, kind of passed the other side and kept going. Like I said, we have limits. We can't feel the same about everything. But, but then God brought me back to the post, and I reread it, and then I got to the fourth country, and I don't know why this one really, it really wrecked me. Eritrea was fourth on the list. And here was the line that hit me. There are thought to be a thousand Christians indefinitely detained in Eritrean prisons, not officially charged with anything. Some leaders of these churches have been imprisoned in terrible conditions for more than a decade, including solitary confinement in tiny cells. I just thought about that. So what do you do with that? What do you do? Let your heart hurt, pray, Give, maybe you become a lawyer and you fight for human rights. Maybe you join a, a, a global justice organization. I mean, there, there, are, there are things we can do in, 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 in whatever sphere, whatever place Christ wants you to be, to the, ability, to the extent that you are able, the compassion gives birth to mercy, which will change the world. All right, there's tons of, need, there's tons of things, tons of places Mercy and love work out in actions and activity that can be messy and costly and time-consuming in so many ways. But Christianity offers the resource that will provide everything you need to do it. And it's called grace. If we're going to give grace a proper name, we would say Jesus. Through this parable, Jesus challenges us to go and do likewise, to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and to act for their good. But here is a really important point. Before any of our acting is someone else's doing. See, the lawyer, he came and he, and he asked this question around the law. There was this whole thing around the law. To love your God, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But if you go back, at what, what you realize is what, what, what the lawyer was doing and what the Bible was doing and what Jesus was confirming is what that is is a summary of what's known as the Ten Commandments. 
This, this sort of summary statement of what God's people are supposed to go and do or to not do, what they're supposed to pursue or not pursue. But if you go back and you look at the list of 10 commandments, here's what you'll find in both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 in these two books in the first part of your Bible. Here's what you'll find before any of our doing, like don't murder, don't commit, don't covet, honor your mother and father, honor Sabbath. Before any of that stuff, here's what you'll find. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery, out of the land of captivity. See, the preface on any of our doing, any of our being, is God's divine intervention in the life of his people. If you go back to the Exodus story, God's people are in slavery. They're on the side of the road, half dead. And God comes in, he doesn't walk by, he doesn't just pass by, he comes and says, I'm going to act for your good. And he delivers them, he sets them free, and then he calls them to respond. That story of God not walking by, And God stepping in to help is no more clearly seen in what is known as the gospel. The good news that saves us and writes us, renews us, and restores us. And the good news, we're reminded of the one, Jesus, who saw us in our need, in our sin, in our stupidity, in our hatred for neighbor, in our desperate condition, and he didn't just walk by He stooped down low from heaven to earth and wrapped himself in humanity. Stepped into help in ways that explode this parable. We weren't half dead. We were fully dead. Our our fix wasn't just going to be a couple of weeks in an inn with some time to rest. And the payment to actually fix us was more than a, a couple of days wages. But what we're told that Christ gave when he came in and saw our pitiful condition is he gave his very life. And in this place, he almost flips himself into the beat man on the side. Jesus Christ put himself in our place, allowed himself to be stripped naked, to be beaten, to be pinned to a tree, to be crucified. Why? Compassion. He looked at his neighbors, he looked at his enemies, he looked at those that weren't looking to him, he looked at those that rejected him, and he said, I'm going to come and substitute myself for that person. And when you see this, when, when you see the very pinnacle of what it means to love your neighbor, when you feel it, when you experience it, you can't but help look with compassion and extend mercy, mercy to others. Scott Sauls, and I will finish with this, says it like this, he says, we must become convinced that love We must become convinced that love has to be a person to us before it can become a verb. See, the engine that will help you love the categories of neighbors that you might struggle to love or to love to the costliness that we are invited to love is to see how you have been loved in Christ. That's the resource. That's the thing that will fuel your doing. Compassion produces mercy and mercy could change the world. Go and do likewise but do it in the shadow of the cross and the compassion and mercy and love of the one that did it perfect. Let's pray. Father, the, the, the lawyer asks, you know, who's my neighbor? The lawyer, the lawyer wants to know, how do I attain to eternal life? God, the answer is through trusting in the work of Christ alone. And then we'll stop asking the question, who is my neighbor. And so we'll say, God, make me a neighbor. Change my heart to love. God, give us the wisdom 
to discern how we're to engage. Give us the wisdom to know what to do, but let our hearts flinch compassion and let our lives lead with mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.